pray, may God be everywhere I go. Somebody say amen to that. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to welcome all of you to this 1045 service. And I want to say good morning to all you folks across the street, the video venue, and folks joining us online, wherever you might be. We're so glad to have you here. If you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to grab it and go with me to the Gospel of Luke. And when you find the Gospel of Luke, I want you to find the ninth chapter. We're going to spend our time today in a very brief passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you something. And if you've been around or a part of our Mount Pleasant family for any length of time, you know this is true. Every year at this time of the year, I'm talking about very end of October, 1st of November, up until Thanksgiving, I always spend three or four weeks talking about stewardship. And to be even more specific, I talk about financial stewardship, so I talk about money. That's what I do. I do it for three or four weeks every year this time of year. And I want you to listen to me close. I'm very deliberate and I'm very unapologetic about it. I'm very unapologetic about it. I talk about money for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think you should know this if you've been here for any length of time. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Somebody say that's right. Has a lot to say. Well, that was not as enthusiastic as I hoped it would be. But it does. It has a lot to say about money. In fact, there are over 2,500 verses in the Bible about money and possessions, about handling money and possessions, and uh, way more than the Bible says about other things that we value, we deeply value in our Christian walk, like faith and prayer and the hope of heaven and all of that, so much more about money. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. God knows, Jesus knows that, that there are, is almost nothing in the world that attracts our affection more than money does and causes us at times, Paul even writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, causes us to wander from the faith like the pursuit of money. That's what the Bible says. So we need to know what the Bible says about money. I don't care whether you got a little or a lot. It's the same for all of us. And you know and apply and understand what the Bible has to say about money. You can experience financial freedom in your life again. I don't care if you have a little or a lot. I know that for a fact. That's been the reality of my life for the last many, many years. The second reason why we talk about money is this. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. You you have to be really naive or just blind to walk onto our campus and not know that it takes ministry, it takes money to do ministry the way that we do. I mean, we're not a church, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. We're not a church that that, that meets just for the sake of meeting. We're not a church that, that takes up an offering just so we can pay the utility bills and open the door next week. We're a church that genuinely believes, genuinely believes that God can use us to change the world for someone somewhere. That's why we say that uh, our mission statement is to change the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. We make an impact in our community every single day, every single week. We make an impact around the world through mission partners. You heard this morning about a home build in Mexico. We got a group of people right now in Burma doing ministry in Burma right now and in Thailand. I mean, it just, there's no end to what we do, and it takes money to accomplish that kind of ministry. And so we talk about it. But I'm going to do something different this year. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to roll the dice, and I'm not going to spend three or four weeks talking to you about money uh, during this uh, normal time of year when we do that. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, generosity and why you need to be a faithful financial supporter and partner of our ministry. But I'm going to spend my time for the next few weeks talking about what it means to have an all-in commitment to Christ, what it looks like to have an all-in commitment to Christ. And we're going to begin this weekend with this passage from 
Luke chapter 9. When we get to Luke chapter 9, we find Luke's record of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Very familiar story. In fact, it's the only miracle Jesus ever performed that's found in all four Gospels. And so we see Luke's version of that. And then a little bit later, after that miracle, we see Jesus turning to the crowd and talking to them about just the reality of what's going to happen in his life. He talks to them about how he's going to be betrayed, how he's going to be rejected, how he's going to be executed, but he's going to rise from the dead. Now, I tell you, I don't think his disciples really understood what was happening in the moment. I don't, I don't think they did, not for a moment. I know they didn't. And, and I think there are probably multiple reasons why. Jesus often taught in parables. Maybe they thought he was speaking in a parable and he was speaking metaphorically and not literally. Another reason why they might not have understood it was because, you know, in their minds as Jews, they believed that the Messiah was going to come in power as a conquering Messiah. And they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of a Messiah coming and being rejected and being executed, even though Jesus told them he was going to rise from the dead. So I think their heads are really spinning at one point in this situation, one point in this setting. And so in the midst of that, Jesus speaks Honestly, friends, some of the most serious, some of the most sobering, and some of the most powerful words of his entire ministry, and he does it with a real economy of effort in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. So if you've got your Bibles open there with me, wherever you are, stand together in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do, and we're going to read that together. Now, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. This is something we do every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service every week because we so value the truth of God's Word. I'm reading from my NIV Bible this morning, a brief passage. You follow along. It says, beginning in verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? And we need to understand that to mean his very soul. Okay, there it is. May God add his blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. You can be seated this morning. All right. All right. The Bible clearly teaches us. I hope you understand this. The Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus came into the world to give us a new life, a life that's better, a life that's different than any life that we can have on our own. He even calls it an abundant life in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Now, some people might hear that and think that receiving this new life is like winning the lottery, like it's an experience that you happen. It just happens. But that's not really the way it goes. That's not how it works. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Every promise of the Bible is true. God really does want to give us a new and a better life, an incredible life, an abundant life. But there's a process to it. That's what I want you to understand with me this morning. There's a very important process to experiencing, receiving and experiencing this new and different and abundant life that can't be ignored. And here it is. In order to experience this life that Jesus offers, you have to pay the price. You have to be willing to pay the price of dying to yourself. You've got to die to yourself. Now, that shouldn't surprise any of us because Jesus has talked about this on multiple occasions during his vocational ministry. And then, even after he was gone, the Apostle Paul took up this same message and he reiterated it and reinforced it in his New Testament ministry and in his New Testament writings. In fact, let me just give an example. Look at these words on the screen, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What's he talking about? He's talking about dying to yourself. He's talking about the exact same thing that Jesus talked about throughout his ministry and in the text that we read earlier. But here's the question. How? 
How? How do we do this? I mean, on a really practical day-in and day-out basis for people like you and me, how do you die to yourself? What does that really look like? Well, the simple answer is it looks like an all-in. I think everybody understands what it means to be all-in. It looks like an all-in commitment to Christ. And if I go back to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, I see some very specific truths or characteristics of what that all-in commitment to Christ looks like. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one. An all-in life follows Christ with abandon. That's the first thing. An all-in life follows Christ with, ab- with abandon. I go back to Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I've talked to you before about the great German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've talked to you about him before as an illustration of what real genuine commitment to Christ looks like. Bonhoeffer was a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant theologian, and his ministry really began to take off in Germany in the late 1930s. But there was something else happening in Germany at the same time. Hitler had risen to power and had begun to manipulate the minds of the German people in order to change the values and the direction of their country. Bonhoeffer was an open and outspoken critic of Hitler and the Nazi regime, a fact that did not escape the attention of Adolf Hitler. In fact, on one occasion during a live broadcast where Bonhoeffer was calling for the German people to take a stand for what's right against the growing force of oppression that was the result of Hitler's influence, the transmission was cut off in mid-sentence by the authorities. Just one example of how Hitler and the Nazi regime disliked Bonhoeffer, everything that he taught and everything that he stood for. About the same time, Bonhoeffer got the privilege of traveling to the U.S. so that he could do a session of study and a session of teaching at the Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and it was very successful. But when his session came to an end, the seminary offered him the opportunity to stay and become a permanent member of their faculty. What a great opportunity that would have been for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to get out of Germany during the country's darkest hour. He could have had an easy life in New York. He could have had a comfortable life here in the States, but he turned it down saying, in effect, I have a greater calling and a greater responsibility beyond what's good for me or what's best for me. He said, my place is with the German people. In fact, his exact words were, I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. Eventually, he returned to Germany. He was forbidden by the Gestapo to preach in public, but he didn't let that stop him in his ministry He spent years traveling in secret from one village to another doing what he called seminary on the run. He provided training for courageous pastors who were serving illegally in small underground churches across Germany. Finally, in 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo. He was placed in a concentration camp and sentenced to die. And on April the 9th, 1945, just a few weeks before the war ended, they took him out on a cold German morning and they hanged him because he would not compromise his biblical values and beliefs. One of his closest friends, a physician who witnessed the execution, said that he watched Bonhoeffer praying alone in his final hours, and he wrote these words as a testimony. He wrote, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer, 
In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Many years before all of this happened, Bonhoeffer wrote a book that ended up becoming a Christian classic. It was called The Cost of Discipleship, and it includes a phrase that proved to be prophetic. He wrote in that book, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He didn't write those words from an ivory tower. He lived those words out in a prison cell. This is what we need to understand. It's not just true for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's true for all of us. It's not just true in ancient days or older days in the midst of a deep time of struggle and conflict. It's true for you and me every single day when Christ calls you, when when Christ calls me, He calls us to come and die. Now, I'm not talking about physical death. Bonhoeffer wasn't writing about physical death, although there are certainly different parts of the world today where that's a possibility for anyone who lives a genuine and an authentic Christian life. In just a couple of weeks, our dear friend Dr. Ajay Lal is going to be here from India, and I've asked him to preach the third part of this all-in series, and he's going to talk to you about what believers in India face every day, the kind of persecution that they face because of their faith, and he's going to tell you stories of some who have given their lives. But this wasn't written primarily about physical death. Bonhoeffer was talking about dying to everything that stands between you and a heart that's completely sold out to Christ. But again, I find myself with the question, what does that mean? Well, it means we all go through life with different hopes and different dreams and different ambitions. All of us, you do and I do, I am no different from you when it comes to that. We all go through life like that. But when you call yourself a Christian, those things become toxic when they take first place in your life because first place belongs to Christ. And you won't experience the fullness of that abundant life that He promises if you're not willing to say no to yourself and say yes to Him in every single area of life and living. You know, if you took the time to study the life of Jesus, and in particular, you studied His teachings, you would find that He made frequent references to self-denial, and oftentimes He used the image or the illustration of the cross as an example. And there was a reason for that. Every time Jesus' hearers would have heard him use the word cross, it would have evoked in their minds a very clear picture of death, a brutal, violent, degrading death, and they would have understood that death is what he was talking about. And so when Jesus said that you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily, those who were listening to him understood that his call was to die to yourself every single day. It was a call to full surrender. And I don't know about you, but I read or I hear the story of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I ask myself the question, I ask myself the question this week, is this the kind of complete surrender that is the reality of my life? Am I following Jesus completely, or am I asking Jesus to follow me in my own version of some spiritualized American dream that gives me a sense of spiritual security, but never asks me to stop living for myself and never asks me to make any kind of sacrifice for Him? Do you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed? He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Took all of his disciples with him, but then he left some and he took three of them. He took James and John and Peter a little further. And it's it's an incredible moment because it gives us the opportunity to see the heart of Jesus 
from a human perspective. You know, when Jesus was here in the world, the Bible teaches us that he was 100% God, but at the same time, he was 100% man. And in the garden, we got to see the reality of that humanity. The curtain is pulled back just a little bit. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, he looked at James and John and Peter, and he said these words. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Can that be right? Did Jesus, the divine Son of God, speak those words? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And then it got even more real, because in the very next verse, in verse 39, he goes, we go on to read, going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And again, I think, is that, is that, can that be right? Was Jesus the divine son of God who came into the world for the express purpose of dying on the cross, asking God in the last hour, in the last moment, is, if there was another way to do this, if he could somehow avoid the cross? But then he immediately follows up that question with these words, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, here's the deal. I'm sure that many of us, probably, honestly, most all of us who are listening, whether you're here across the street or wherever you're joining us online, I'm, I'm sure that most all of us have had a moment in our lives where we expressed a sincere desire to follow Jesus and to experience a new beginning in our lives. We call that salvation. But what so many of us fail to realize is that that new beginning is only going to make a difference in our lives if we're willing to pray the same prayer that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, not, yet not as I will, but as you will. However you want to word it. Not my will, but your will be done. But if your life of faith takes a backseat to your dreams and your desires and your plans, then there's something wrong, and that is absolutely not what it means to follow Christ with abandon. You can do that, and you can gain a whole lot of what this world has to offer. But Jesus tells us in our text that when we leave him out of the equation, whatever we gain or whatever we achieve from or in this world turns out to be empty. That's what Jesus meant when he said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self or his very soul? And the only way to avoid that tragedy, and a tragedy is what that is, is to be willing to die to yourself and follow Christ with absolute abandon. Right down next to number two. Number one, an all-in life follows Christ with abandon. The second thing that I see in our text is an all-in life follows Christ one day at a time. One day at a time. If we look back at Luke 9, 23, we read, Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Now note this daily and take up his cross daily and follow me let's think about that word daily for just a few minutes we just talked about the meaning of Jesus's reference to the cross how it was a reference to death a reference to full surrender Jesus's listeners I told you would have understood that every time they heard him use the cross they would have understood that because they would have that would have evoked images in their minds of men that they had seen paraded through the streets of the city carrying a crossbeam, just like it happened with Jesus in the gospel accounts of his death. They would have been paraded through the city carrying a crossbeam on their shoulders on their way outside the city gates to the place of their execution. That's what it would have been in their minds when Jesus said, you need to take up your cross daily. This is something that Jesus said we have to do as followers 
In other words, being a Christian doesn't mean that you coast through life because there was a moment in your life when you prayed a prayer or there was a moment in your life when you made a profession of faith or there was a moment in your life when you were baptized into Christ or whatever you want to point to. The truth is that's that's only the beginning. And every day after that, there needs to be a moment. And truth be told, there needs to be multiple moments in our lives each and every day where we surrender everything. Look at this quote on the screen from C.S. Lewis. I think I've used this before, but it bears repeating. He writes and says, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. What's he talking about? He's talking about this need to take up your cross daily, to die to yourself on a daily basis. The great pianist Andre Previn once said, if I miss a day of practice, I know it. If I miss two days, my manager knows it. If I miss three days, my audience knows it. The same thing can be said about dying to yourself. When you start skipping days of dying to yourself, maybe nobody around you will notice, but eventually it will catch up to you. And before you know it, you won't be anywhere near experiencing the abundant, new, and different, and better life that Jesus offers. And this is something that we all need to be reminded of on a regular basis. You know, there was an incredibly popular book, and I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this. There was an incredibly popular book published several years ago called Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. It was written by a man named Joel Osteen. He's the pastor of the largest church in America. To date, it sold over four million copies. Maybe you have one. If you look at that book, you find that none of those seven steps to living at your full potential has anything to do at all with denying yourself or taking up your cross daily. Not one single thing, not one reference, nowhere. In fact, none of those seven steps has anything to do with the gospel that Jesus preached, a gospel that began with the words, repent, repent. Or in other words, turn away from your old life and turn to a new and a better life. And do you know why? It's because we've lost sight of the genuine call of Christ and we've, con- we've created our own version of the gospel that fits into the daily pursuits of our own lives and our own desires. And thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people have been deceived by it. You don't have to look very far around us in our country to see the result of that nominal kind of faith. I am today, like so many of you, deeply disturbed by the current condition and the future prospect of our country. In fact, it is so disturbing to me, and maybe you can relate to this, it is so disturbing to me that I have to consciously force myself not to think about it because if I don't consciously force myself not to think about it, it dominates my thoughts and it causes me to lose sleep at night. That's the reality of my life. And I am also deeply, deeply dissatisfied with both the Democratic and Republican candidate for, candidates for president as well as the independents that are running as well. And I'm going to talk about this for just a moment because so many of you have asked, and it's much more efficient for me to do it in a setting like this. 
I am deeply dissatisfied with all the candidates, but I am also so strongly opposed to one of them that it takes all the self-control that I have not to talk about it all the time. I'm not an alarmist by nature. I've been your pastor for 15 years. You should know that about me. I'm not an alarmist by nature. I never have been, but I'll tell you this. There is much more at stake for our country in this upcoming election than personalities and party loyalties. Our country, and I don't believe I'm overstating this, is standing on the brink of a terrifying threat to religious freedom and traditional faith in general. And whoever becomes our next president will have the opportunity to nominate Supreme Court justices that could advance an American culture that is diametrically opposed to biblical truth and biblical values. The outcome of that would not impact our country for four more years or for eight more years. It would impact our country for generations, plural, generations to come. Now, I could spend a lot more time talking about it, and I'm going to resist the temptation to do that. And I'm going to tell you, whenever this becomes overwhelming to me in my thoughts, then I consciously remind myself of two things. And the first one is this. No matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens next month, no matter what happens in the future, God has always been and will always be sovereign and seated on His throne. He will always be in control. He will always be in control. Now, I'm going to be the first one to say that sometimes you look around and it's hard to see. And I don't think I'm being, I don't think I'm saying something wrong to say that I'm just being honest. Sometimes it's hard. We don't, we don't know the mind of God. We don't always understand how God chooses to exercise His sovereignty. But I know this, we can open up our Bibles and we can turn to some pretty horrific times of sin and depravity in the history of the world and know that God was still sovereign, God was still in control. And not only that, He was at work behind the scenes to accomplish His ultimate divine purpose. The second thing I remind myself of is this. The Christian faith, what we're talking about this morning, and the Christian church has always been strongest and always been most impactful when it experienced the reality of persecution. And there's a reason for that. Because persecution exposes the genuineness of our faith and our commitment. People who are not the real deal when it comes to the Christian faith do not stick around during times of persecution because they have no skin in the game. It exposes the reality of our faith. And you'd have to be naive and have your head buried in the sand to not know that over the last several years there's been a cultural shift in our country that has placed Christians, I'm talking about genuine, sincere, Bible-believing Christians, in the minority in the world we live in today. <clears throat> 36 years ago, when I began my full-time ministry, I would have told you that the, that the Christian church, the church, the evangelical church, and Christians in general, we were like the home team. 36 years later, we're not the home team anymore. We're the visiting team, to put it in a sports vernacular. And the tendency in many churches And the tendency with many people who call themselves Christians has been to adapt to the culture by compromising previously held spiritual convictions and worse, by compromising biblical truth. And as the future unholds, and I'm not an alarmist, remember when I say this, but I'm just telling you what's in my heart. As the future unholds, it may very well be that 
churches who hold to biblical truth, churches that are filled with believers who follow Christ with deep devotion will face the threat of losing things like their tax-exempt status on property or their charitable giving deductions because they refuse to bow to liberal culture and revisionist theology that tries to take something that's wrong and say that it's right. But as troubling as this is to me, it also provides an opportunity for the church and for Christians to shine so much brighter in the darker places of the world. When Yemeli and Yaroslavsky led the league of the militant godless in Russia in the 1920s in an effort to try to stamp out Christianity in that part of the world, he grew frustrated at the stubbornness of faith, and he said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. The translation is just simply genuine faith flourishes in time of persecution. Our country has changed. I love the United States of America. I love the flag. The singing of the national anthem is still a moving and emotional experience to me. Tricia and I were at the opening season home opener for the Pacers this last week, and the Oak Ridge Boys, who, by the way, look older than dirt. came out and sang the national anthem. And it was, move, it was moving to me to see the flag by the honor corps and to hear the words of the anthem. A few weeks ago, I did a funeral for a man in our church who was a Navy veteran. It was a beautiful morning at the graveside. The sky was blue, the sun was shining, and seeing his casket draped with an American flag, hearing the 21-gun salute, seeing that flag carefully and meticulously folded and given to his widow, who was in our 9 o'clock service this morning on behalf of a grateful nation, was a powerful reminder to me of what the flag stands for. I support anyone's right to protest something that they see as unfair and unjust, but I don't understand doing it in a way that creates more hurt and more division in a country that's already hurting and divided. I love this country, but as much as I love this country, I'm telling you, I believe that we are approaching a time when living in this country, when living a truly genuine biblical Christian life will be viewed as an alternative lifestyle, but not one that is respected, not one that is encouraged, and not one that will be embraced. But that's not, all, that's not all a bad thing. Because being different from the prevailing culture is what we were called to do. That's the kind of commitment we were called to 2,000 years ago. The only question is how many of us, really, honestly, how many of us are willing to embrace that kind of all-in commitment? I saw a statistic the other day that said the average church member attends church 1.7 times a month. Going to church on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning is to me the easiest part of being a Christian. It's so much easier than actually being a light and a conscience and a witness to a dark and unbelieving world the rest of the week. And I read a statistic like that, and all that does is tell me that that kind of nominal commitment to the local church weakens the church today and threatens the church of the future. It weakens the church today and it threatens the church of the future. And it's time for a lot of believers, 
a lot of Christians to reprioritize that part of their spiritual life. I'm not up here today with the intent of stepping on your toes, making anybody mad or angry or trying to make anybody feel guilty. I'm never going to stand up here on a week-after-week basis and try to make you feel guilty if you don't come to church because guilt is the worst motivation for coming to church that I can imagine. But I take my role as a spiritual shepherd seriously, and I would not feel like I was doing my job before God if I didn't warn you against the potential spiritual danger of a nominal commitment to the church that God bought with the blood of His Son and God chose to use as His instrument to change the world. Now, someone might push back and say, well, pastor, there's a whole lot more to being a Christian than going to church. And I would say, you're absolutely right. In fact, you can go to church 52 weeks out of the year, and not, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a deeply devoted follower of Christ. I would say, you're absolutely right. I wouldn't argue with that for a second. But I would ask you what you're doing to demonstrate that truth. I would ask you what you're doing to ensure your ongoing spiritual development. I would ask you what you're doing to meet your ongoing need to receive and to give community. I would ask you what you're doing to meet your ongoing responsibility to use your gifts to serve and encourage and build up the body of Christ. I would ask you what you're doing to meet your ongoing responsibility to give the witness that God has first place in your life. And I would ask you this. If you're parents with young children at home, what kind of generational legacy are you passing on to your children when it comes to their belief and their commitment to the local church? I think it's getting harder and harder with every passing generation to be a parent. I really believe that. We live in a society and a culture that does not value Sunday as separate or sacred anymore simply because we let it happen. And in some cases, we didn't just let it happen, we embraced it. My kids are grown, and they're out of the house. They're 31 and 28 years old. I have grandchildren today. And I know that different parents have different approaches with how they deal with their children and their extracurricular activities because one of the reasons, let's be honest, one of the reasons why so many people miss church is because they're involved with their children on weekend activities outside of church. And I understand how difficult that is. Please, don't misunderstand me. I do. I understand how difficult that is. But I will tell you that from my perspective, for whatever it's worth, when my kids were young, I realized that I had a limited window of time, a limited window of time to shape and mold their spiritual lives and give them a spiritual foundation. Listen, if you're here and you're my age or older, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Because you blink and those children are gone. And I always made sure that my children knew that church had first place on the weekend because God has first place in our lives. I did that for a number of different reasons. You don't have to apply. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I did that for a number of different reasons. And one of them was just to give them some perspective in life to show them that the world did not revolve around them. God has first place in our lives. I know you're facing unique challenges today when it comes to sports and music and dance and all the different kinds of things that you have to deal with. But I'm telling you today, my children at 31 and 28 who are, who are here, who use their gifts to serve the Lord every week, I can't even begin to put. 
I can't even begin to put into words what it means to me to see my children stand on this platform and use their gifts to serve the Lord like Tricia did this morning. But I'm telling you, that didn't happen by accident. And they're not doing that just because they were pastor's kids, because I got a lot of friends who are pastors whose kids have walked away from the Lord. It happens because you, in this limited window of time, you have to shape and mold their spiritual lives, make sure that they know that in life, God has first place. Christ comes first. Your kids are not going to grow up in the same world you grew up in. They are not. And they need a spiritual foundation to be able to grow up in a way that protects them and that honors Christ. I am so out of time. Let me give you the third thing real quickly, and I'll do it quickly. In fact, Tyson, you can come ahead, go ahead and come, and we'll close. The third thing that I see in this story, in this, in this, not this story, in this text where Jesus speaks to the disciples is this. And all in life recognizes a better plan. That's the third thing. And all in life recognizes a better plan. And all I'll do is refer you back to verses 24 and 25. After Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He went on to say, remember, he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or his very soul? I want, I want you to think about the call of Christ on your heart right now, in your life right now, which is a call to absolute, complete, full commitment, dying to yourself on a daily basis. That might not have been the life that you envisioned, but that's the life that God has called you to. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that we used earlier, and I think about his death and I think about how tragic that was for his life to end that way. And yet, that gave him a platform through his writings and his teaching and his witness to influence Christianity now for more than 70 years. If your life and my life is all about what we want, then no matter what we get in the end, Jesus says it will have been a waste. But if our lives are all about being willing to say what Jesus said in the garden, not as I will, but as you will, then our lives can be something greater than we ever imagined. The life that I'm living today, in many ways, was not the life that I envisioned, but this is the life God called me to. The life that you're living might not be what you thought would be. it would be, but it's what God has called you to. It's a life of denying yourself Taking up your cross daily, which means dying to yourself daily, and following Jesus with absolute abandon, one day at a time, always knowing that no matter what plan you might have or might come up with, that he's got a plan that's better. It's better. Bonhoeffer said it like this, when Christ calls a man to die, excuse me, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus said it like this, I'll read it one more time, then we'll pray. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. And what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his very soul?